You know, I've mentioned before, whenever we, uh, whenever we have and hold forth doctrines, of course the word doctrine just basically means teaching. A lot of people say, you know, you have doctrinal teaching, you have experiential teaching, uh, you have, uh, uh, what do they call it, application teaching and everything like that. Actually, I mean, all teaching is doctrine. I mean, that's basically what the word means, is doctrine. But usually whenever we say doctrine, we usually mean some sort of a theological topic, you know, like the doctrine of justification, which would be the teaching of justification, or the doctrine of the resurrection, or something to that effect, you know. Whenever we look at the doctrine or the teaching of who God is, or how God works, or the teaching of salvation, or the teaching of uh, the nature of man. Um, we never get those by outward observation necessarily. Do Can we understand things by looking at observation of what we see with our eyes, hear with our ears, you know, those senses and everything? Yeah, we can. I mean, I look around the world and I see there is no good person. Even the best of person uh, on their very best day has issues, right? Uh, so I can look with my eyes and I can hear and I can, you know, know that there is no good in man. Um, but yet, what we know and what we are to understand as far as it is in truth, we have to get that from the Word of God. Because this is the only thing that is truth. And I know I say that often, and I don't know if I can say it too much. This is the only place that God has given us where we can find truth. This is the only truth. This is truth. Not that there is things that maybe the Bible doesn't talk about, and there's truth out there. I mean, it's true that, you know, my car has four wheels. That's a truth, and that's not found in the Scripture. I'm not talking about stuff like that, people getting that off on semantics and different things like that. What I'm talking about is what we know about God, what we know of God and His salvation and us as, as people and as His creation. Those things are bound up in this book and the truth of who God is and how He's revealed Himself to the extent that He has revealed Himself can only be found here. Is there more to God than what's found in here? Absolutely. Even the Bible said about Jesus that if, if everything had been written about everything about Jesus that none of the books could contain them. I mean, they, they couldn't have written, written it all down. I mean, going through, you know, Larry's been reading through the Gospels and reading through that, you see a lot of miraculous works and a lot of things that Jesus did and said and prophecies that was fulfilled, but yet... That did not contain everything he did. And I would have liked to have I would have liked to have seen the record of everything that he at least did here. That would have been awesome to see that. But you know, God didn't choose to record it all for us. Didn't choose to have men write it down. So we have to take what God has revealed about himself and about all these other issues. We have to take that because this is the only truth. I can take my feelings, I can take my emotions, I can take you know, psychology, I can take what's going on out there, and I can try to apply that, and I can mold my doctrine according to that, but I wouldn't have truth. 
Now, what happens is, is the Word of God has to mold our thinking and our understanding of what the, the issue at hand is, whatever it is we're looking at about God and about these things. It has to mold us because that is truth, right? So, I got to thinking about that. And I got to thinking, why would... And, and I know, my mind's going a thousand directions on this. I know that sometimes we would rather live in the lie than to know truth, right? Sometimes people would rather, you know, hey, don't just let me go in my blindness. I'd rather go in my blindness. I'd rather not know. Just don't let me know, right? You know, there's sometimes in, uh, in business that, you know, Businessmen do business dealings, and I don't particularly like how they do business. It doesn't work with my convictions, right? And so whenever I'm having to do business with men who are doing business dealings, that I just like, you know what? You just don't tell me anything. Here's, here's what I'll do. This is how I, I'll do it. And then whatever you do on your end, you just keep that to yourself. I'd rather not know. Why? I want to keep myself blinded to that thing. I don't want to know if you're doing something underhanded, shady, not completely the truth or what? I don't want to know that. Just you go do your thing and leave me in the dark and I'll do mine and I'll hold to my, you know, try to hold in some integrity as far as I'm concerned. You handle your integrity however you see fit. But anyway, so that's the things that I'm talking about. Whenever it comes to the Word of God and especially whenever we're looking at God, we can't let our feelings and our emotions, we can't let traditions, we can't let the whim of the world mold our mind about what is being said. Um, right now, in this country, give or take one to four hours, there are churches spotted almost on every corner. And there are men standing in pulpits and they are declaring a Jesus and declaring a gospel that is not according to the word of God. It is one that has been dictated by the natural man's reasoning and understanding. It is a Jesus and a gospel that has been dictated to them by theologians, by universities, by creeds and confessions, and I know this is a this is a thing that I harp on all the time, but brethren, it's because it's so prevalent and we are inundated with it. And I pray for the sheep. Of course, Christ is the good shepherd, and he will watch after his sheep, and he they will hear his voice and they will follow him. I don't doubt that at all, but as a pastor, I think of the sheep and I think of all the things that are out there and the inundation that we receive on a daily basis from everybody, from friends and from family and just from society in general, your neighborhood, your your community that you live in, the pressures to accept a Jesus and a God that is not part of Scripture. And by nature, we are people who like to be accepted. I like to be liked. You know, I say all the time to my kids, you know, uh, you know, hey, they don't like me. I, no, that's their, I'm sorry. That's who I am. Uh, if they come, they don't like what I'm preaching, if they don't like what the doctrine that I'm holding and everything, 
you know, I sorry. You know, this is what it is. You know, uh, and I don't mean that in a harsh way. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying, you know, I, it doesn't bother me if people want to walk away and not friend me on Facebook anymore. Okay, if what I'm preaching as far as truth is concerned. Now, as far as me being as a person, I like people to like me. I don't want people to not like me and hate me and talk bad about me and all that kind of stuff, right? I not include me in things if, you know, I don't like that. But if it's for the sake of the gospel, I don't care about that. That is not my main goal. And so whenever, as a pastor, thinking about the sheep and about the inundation that, it, that the world has on all of us, and everything. It just seems to me that every now and then we need to remind ourselves that the truth that we have and the truth that has been given to the elect of God, especially what's found here, but even more importantly, what's been taught in here by the Holy Spirit Himself, that sometimes we're looking even in this. You know, we can look in this and get wrong conclusions, right? I used to preach out of this for several years and preach a wrong gospel. See, the ultimate teaching isn't me reading these black and white words because these black and white words don't mean anything until the Spirit reveals and teaches what the meaning of this is in the inward man to the spiritual man. See, the fleshly man can look at these and say, ah, that fits my, that fits my theology right there and I'm just going to twist these words, pull these things out you know, as a preacher, that's what I used to do. I was a topical preacher, that, and I'm not against topical preaching, but as a topical preacher who would pluck verses here and there and there to fit my topic, and most of the time they were all out of context. So what am I getting at? I'm getting at is whenever we look at what's being taught on the majority, we have to remember that we are on the narrow road. We are under a hated gospel. We are, we are a people who are despised and rejected. Now that isn't something we just should be going out and looking for. You know, I'm not out there going to look for it. But the fact remains that if we preach, because Jesus said that if we follow in His doctrine, if we teach what He teaches, if we are His disciples that we are going to experience the same thing He did. He, he experienced hatred by the religious leaders. He experienced hatred by the religious people. He, and so do we. Listen, the churches around this town, they hate what we preach here. They hate what we teach here. We're not going to be the first of their list to be on the community, you know, hey, come preach to our community, would you? No, they're going to find the most ecumenical, the most watered down, the most soft preaching, lovely, lovey messenger that they can find in town to come and preach to people's consciences that everything is lovely and God loves everybody and everything's good and we're all God's children. But they don't want nobody that comes and preaches what the Bible teaches. So, as the people of God, we need to remember that we have a message that is only revealed by God and is only loved by the people of God and is going to be rejected by the crowds. One of those things, and Larry has wrote a book about it, and it's a great book, 
the free will of man is a fallacy. That is one of the things that we see being taught everywhere is the free will of man. And whenever we look at what does the Bible say, because everyone goes to this default position. They go to a reasoning position that, well, we have to have free will because, number one, God is a gentleman and He wouldn't force anything on us. I've heard Adrian Rogers and men like that say that over and over and over again till I'm sick. God is a gentleman and He will not force His will upon you. The Apostle Paul might say something different. Job might say something different, right? All through the Scriptures. Go through. Every one of those men may say, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Um, listen, Lot didn't want to leave his home. <laughs> he didn't want to leave that home. He went, but he didn't want to leave. Uh, God controls the will. The second thing the men will say is, well, if there is no free will, then there is no culpability, no responsibility. Then men are not responsible for their actions because God controls everything. Well, brethren, here again is where we have to let the Bible be our teacher. Let the Spirit be the teacher here. If the Bible says that we will be held accountable before God... And it says that He controls all things, including the will, then those two things are not antithetical to each other. Your understanding of those things are antithetical, but His saying it is not in opposition of each other. If God says, I will hold men accountable for their sins, and then someone says, well, how can you hold me accountable for my sins if you control the will, if you have predestined all things, how can you hold me accountable to that? And Paul in Romans chapter 9 says, Who art thou, O man, who replies back to God, Why hast thou made me thus? See, that there is the answer to the question. God is not unjust in saying, I can do everything according to my purpose that I want to do, and I can also hold you accountable for doing that thing that I'm holding you accountable for. Why? Because God is judging the sin and He created a people for the judgment of sin. That's why the Bible says that He created some, He ordained some to condemnation. He ordained them that way. He predestinated them for the purpose of condemning them for sin. That's a principle. That's a matter of fact. It's not a conditional thing that He will judge them if they commit these sins. It is a principle of fact. God created vessels of destruction, vessels of dishonor, vessels of reprobation, vessels given to condemnation. He created the wicked for the day of evil, and the evil shall be judged. That's not a conditional thing. That's not a thing to throw up in the air and say, well, then God's unjust if He does that because they don't have a, they have an excuse on why they did it. No, they, they have no excuse because God created them for that purpose. There is no excuse because they are what they are. They were sinners. They sinned. They couldn't help but sin. 
And they can't say, God, why did you make me this way? Because God is going to always come back and say, I'm the potter, you're the clay, I made you that way, you don't have no say-so about it. Now I know when we say that, I'm not trying to say that cavalier, and I'm not trying to say that as, as God is saying that to some you know, ogre type person, but we got to remember, brethren, and here's where the disconnect sometimes comes. We are the creation, and He's the Creator. We like to make ourselves equal to God and raise ourselves up on His level and say, Hey, who are you? Why'd you make me this way? How can you do that? And then to turn around and say that I can't even question this? See, we're putting ourselves exactly what Romans 1 says. We are now bringing God down. We are suppressing the truth. And now we are making ourselves to be as God. That's the whole lie, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You don't want to eat, or you're, you, you want to eat that because if you eat that, God doesn't want you to eat that, but if you eat that, you'll be as God. You'll be like God. See, all of us, it goes back to the thing, we want to be as God. We want to be as Him. We want to have control of our own destiny. We want to have the say-so. We want our wills to be the superior. We want to be in control of everything. We don't want to be subservient. We don't want to be submissive. We don't want to be the worshiper. We want to be worshipped. And that's where we see today in so many pulpits the preaching of free will it's because if free will does not exist, then that leaves every man, every woman, every child bare and naked before their Maker. I am what I am. Paul said, Who is it that makes me to differ? What I am, I am because of who God is and what He has made me. The only thing that has made me to differ from the wicked is that I was loved before the foundation of the world. So brethren, we are beholden to God and most people don't want the God of the Scriptures. Now, with that being said, many are going to say, well preacher, I just think you're off on that. There's too many verses in the Bible that talks about us having free will. There's too many verses in there that says, choose you this day whom you will serve and if you will do this or if you will do that and you know, it just talks about will all over the place. Whosoever will may come. And all those verses, we believe every one of those verses. Do you, do you disbelieve any of those verses? You've been preaching on these a long time, brother. You, do you believe those? I believe them too. The problem is, is people don't believe them according to the Scriptures. The whosoever wills, well, who are they? The Bible tells us who they are. It's not just the willy-nilly as you make up a decision to come. No, it's the ones who are given by God to do so. It doesn't say, choose you this day whom you will serve between God and what... No, he was saying, choose you among all your gods down here that are not real whom you're going to serve. Because that's who you're going to serve because you're not God's people. Otherwise, you'd be worshiping God. See, it wasn't a choice to choose God today or accept Jesus into your heart or anything like that. That verse didn't have nothing to do with that. Matter of fact, all the Old Testament uh, things talking about choosing and 
obeying and all these conditional things under a conditional type covenant, so to speak, those things were temporal. Do and die. And that went along with all the righteous even as much as it was to the wicked. You remember, he said, if the righteous forsake their righteousness and turn and do wicked, they will die. Does that mean we lose our salvation? If that's talking about salvation, we're losing our salvation. No, it was talking about a temporal thing. God said, if you turn and you do this, even if the righteous, if my let people, if they turn and they do, do wrong and, and don't follow what I've told them to do, they will die. And they did. So, there is no free will. Some will say, well, I just disagree with what you're saying. Well, turn with me. Keep your hands in Exodus, but turn to Proverbs chapter 21. Now, this is an exhaustive list. I wrote down, typed up a couple of uh, uh, verses that we're going to look at here in Exodus in a minute, but there are several verses. And again, I implore you, if you don't have Larry's book, to contact him and uh, get his book, because he deals with that all through his book. But and, one, and this is one of the ones, I'm sure, that most people are aware of, but let's look at it. It says in chapter 21, verse 1 of Proverbs, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, just one observation that I'd like to make about that. If the Lord can do that with the king's heart, and it doesn't necessarily uh, say which king, I'm thinking that since Solomon was writing this, he was thinking about himself. But uh, just because it says the king's heart is in his hand, and he can do, he can turn it whithersoever he wills, the implication there is not just for kings, but for anybody. If God can do it with the king, he can do it with anybody. The proof or the, the point that was being made here is Solomon being the king over everyone, the highest level, the highest order, the one with all the authority in the kingdom, that if God can turn his heart and do whatever he wants to that, you don't think he can do that with the subjects below him? See, the point is, is there is no one outside the scope of God's control. God controls everyone from kings all the way down to serfs. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what your nationality is, what your gender is, and there's only two, by the way. It doesn't matter. God controls it all. The heart is in the hand. You can even, and I'm not saying cut out stuff in the Bible, but I'm just saying you can say the heart is in the hand of the Lord and He can turn it whithersoever He wills. Now if God can do that, then who can say we have free will? Because God can turn the heart whithersoever He wills, whenever He wills. Not when, he doesn't turn the heart whenever we let him turn the heart. If you'll just let God have control, if you'll just give God control of your life, brethren, is there ever a time that God is not in control of anything? If there's ever a time that God is not in control of something, 
then he is no longer sovereign. Because sovereign, the word sovereign, look it up in any dictionary, no matter how far you go back, the word sovereign means absolute control. Total authority. Right? And not only is he sovereign, he is almighty, meaning that he has all power, so he has all the power to carry out everything that he wants to control. This is the God of the Bible. He turns the heart whithersoever He wills. So if He wants to turn your heart to Him, He can do it anytime He wants. So all the people out here begging people to give their heart to Jesus and turn to Christ and to take the object of their faith from here and move it over to here. Listen, God has the right and has the power and can do that to whosoever He wills. And if He doesn't do it to some then that's his choice also. Now, is there an example of where God ever did this in the Scriptures? Well, I think there's lots of them. Again, I, I refer you to Paul and to Job and to, you know, uh, several men in the, in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but, the one that Paul uses and the one that I'd like to use this morning is probably the greatest because it says it the most exact and that's back in Exodus. I think you know where we're going. Back in Exodus, and we're going to start in Exodus chapter 4. Now, brethren, we're going to cover chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. We're not going to read all of them, but uh, we're going to check in on some verses throughout this in the point that we're looking at here. Exodus chapter 4. Now we know that Paul in Romans chapter 9 whenever he speaks of God's election of some and not others. And again, that, that Romans 9 is about personal, individual election. Not national, right? It's not talking about national election. It's talking about individual election. I grew up being taught and hearing other preachers say, oh, I'll preach on Romans 9. That is about election, but it's not about individual election. It's about national election. Well, that doesn't remove the issue at hand, that God elects some and not others, because if He elects nations to salvation and others not, He's still electing people for salvation and others not. It doesn't remove God off the quote-unquote hook that they think He's on. Okay, But brethren, that is about individual election. That's why God broke it down so fine of a point to say the boys, having not yet been born, neither have done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Why? Nothing good or bad. Because he chose this one, he didn't choose this one. It wasn't, it wasn't that they didn't fit themselves for that destruction. They didn't choose or not choose they didn't do a certain amount of righteousness. No, it was before they were even born, before they had done anything good or bad. While they were still in the womb, there was no difference between them. They were twins. They was sharing the same womb at the same time and came out in like fashion, one holding the other one's foot as if it was one child. Now, there is some spiritual foreshadowing there. I believe that's talking about the natural man and the spiritual man being one person. But anyway, that's another day. But we see they came out at the same time from the same mother, from the same womb, 
And they both were born of Adam. But yet God loved one and hated the other for no particular reason other than he set his love upon Jacob and not upon Esau. It wasn't about what happened later in life because Esau and Jacob was equally unrighteous. So Paul uses that point to say God chooses some and not others. And he gets down to the point where he uses Pharaoh as an example of how God has the right to choose some and not others. And the reason that he chooses the others, the Esau's, the Pharaoh's, is so that he might show his power. And I've heard it. I know what it, what, what's being said about that statement. You mean to tell me that God would create people and make it where they could never be saved, make it where they had no excuse, which that ain't true, uh, or that is true, but they think that they have an excuse, that God would make these people just to damn these people and to send them to hell just to show forth His glory. Now to the natural mind, that is egregious. I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I struggle with that sometimes, even today. In the natural man, I struggle with that. But again, it comes down to, what does this Word say? If that's what the Word says about God, then what my feelings, what my emotions, and what society says doesn't make a difference. It's what does this say? Because this is the truth, and this is what's going to be standing the test of time at the end. God's word is going to be true, and every man is going to be liars. Okay? They're saying that is a horrible God, that just for His glory He would condemn millions of people to hell. That's because millions of people have not been given spiritual insight and the, the weight of the holiness of who God is. They are sinful people and deserve everything God gives them as far as condemnation is concerned. They may say, well, He didn't have to make them at all. True, He didn't. But He did. We don't change that. And again, we don't have the right to say, why then did you make me in that camp and not in this camp? They're not going to be able to have that thing. So, does God raise people up for condemnation, for that purpose? Well, let's look in Exodus chapter 4, and look with me if you would. Now, you, you know the story here. This is where God has called Moses, and He's told Moses to go to Pharaoh, and he said, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go out and so they can worship and sacrifice to me in the wilderness. Okay? And so this is where it begins, the interaction. Now, remember, Moses was, uh, was born, and, and, and well, he, he was born a Hebrew, but he grew up in the palace of Pharaoh. Remember, his mom hit him in the basket and floated him down the river to save him from being killed whenever the Pharaoh was having everybody killed. <coughs> and 
Um, Pharaoh's daughter found him, raised him up as her own. So he was raised as one of Pharaoh's own in the deal. But then we find that he uh, uh, killed a man, was out on the backside of the desert for 40 years, came back, and now God had called him to lead his people. And so God is calling him now to go to Pharaoh and to tell him, you need to let my people go. And so if we look in in chapter 4 and verse 21, though, we won't deal with all the other details. Hopefully that generalization was enough. In verse 21 it says this, And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return, it didn't say if, did it? If thou goest. It said when thou goest. Why did God say when thou goest? Because he knew exactly what was about to happen. And he didn't know it because he looked down the corridor of time and saw that Moses would obey with his will and follow. No, because God had predetermined for the foundation of the world that Moses would do this very thing. See, God never gives us ifs. God's never waiting to see what will happen. God is not a reactor. Okay? God does not react. He only acts. He is the he is the uh, he is always the actor, the, the active person in that. He is never a passive person. Uh, all things happen because of his purpose. But anyway, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. Now, make note here. But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. So here is God saying, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that, for the purpose of, him not letting the people go. I'm going to tell him to let them go. He's not going to let them go. And the reason he's not going to let them go is because I'm going to harden his heart. Now, brethren, I don't care what theological degrees you have, how many years you've been on the road, I don't care how many times you've read through the Bible, I don't care about your Greek or Hebrew or your Latin or anything else. That right there says God was going to harden. That means make his heart obstinate. Make his heart cold. Make his heart unwilling to do what God said. Now, what happens when we don't do what God says? What is that called? Anybody? That's called sin, isn't it? When... Moses said, God said to let my people go, and Pharaoh said, no. Was that sin? Absolutely it was. But who made Pharaoh say no? God hardened his heart so that he would not let Pharaoh go. Now, not only does that cover the fact that God is sovereign over all things, not only does that show the fact that God controls the will, but it also shows you that God, in His purposes, in His predestination, has predestinated that this man would sin, therefore sin and evil 
is part of God's predestinated work. Therefore, if you will, God is the author of sin in that regard. Not making God a sinner. Not making God tempt. He didn't tempt Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. Why? Because Pharaoh was a child of reprobation. Pharaoh was a vessel of dishonor. He wasn't tempting Pharaoh. He was using Pharaoh in, as the instrument for which Pharaoh was created. He was created as an instrument in which God would show forth His power and receive glory through it. That was His purpose. If I pick up this remote here, this remote has a purpose. It is to turn on my TV. It's to change my channels. But if I take this thing here and try to dig with it, it might dig a little bit, but it's not going to dig good. If I try to take a screw out of a out of something in my car, it's not going to do it. Why? Because it wasn't created for that purpose. But this thing was created for the purpose of turning on this TV and changing the channels and turning the volume up and down. It has a purpose. Pharaoh has a purpose. Every one of God's creation has a purpose. Now we hear the prosperity people all the time talking about, oh, God's made you with purpose. Well, they're actually right about that. How they use that is not right. But they're actually right. Every person has a purpose. And when we look at the macro view of everything, God has a purpose with the elect and the non-elect. Glory in salvation and righteousness and holiness and uh, grace and mercy in the elect, wrath, judgment in the non-elect. He has a purpose. He's created all things for Himself. The wicked and the righteous. So He says here, <clears throat> And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Now look, if you would, now over chapter 6. So we see here, that's the... That, I, I, I surely, I just talked about universities and things like that. And I'm going to drop back and probably say something that come from one of them. You guys have always heard that there is, in looking and studying the Bible, interpreting the Bible that we always want to look at the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the uh, the principle of first occurrences. Go and look where something is mentioned first and see how it's stated there, and that kind of gives us an idea about the meaning of something, right? Okay? I don't know if that works all the way through or not, but here we have the first occurrence where God tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So whenever it's dealing with Pharaoh letting Moses are letting the people go according to Moses' command or God's command. God says, I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't let them go. So that's the principle that God set down with Moses. Here's the plan. You're going to go say it. He's not going to listen to it. He's not going to let them go. And then I've got ten plagues that I'm going to lay upon them. It's going to happen every time you do a plague. I'm going to continue to harden his heart. He's not going to let him go. But I will deliver my people. Okay? 
So there wasn't an if, and, or but about anything in there. There wasn't a chance that Pharaoh, in the midst of all this, said, all right, all right, all right, I'm just going to let him go and let him go. And the last five plagues wasn't going to ever happen. That, that was never going to happen. God had every plague ordained. Every purpose of God will be completed. And the very last plague of God killing all the firstborn and instituting a type and foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Passover <coughs> was His purpose. The deliverance of His people to come out was for a purpose, to show forth the deliverance of God's elect people through the Lord Jesus Christ. The going through the Red Sea was God's purpose. See, all these things were for a purpose, and they were not just happenstance. Look, if you would, at chapter 6 and verse 1. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. See, God's going to put on display for His people what He is going to do to this man who He created for this purpose. He said, For with a strong hand shall He let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. Now, here God is saying, listen, it's going to happen exactly as I said, because I am the Lord. What does that mean? Sometimes we read over these things and don't think about what does that mean? It means it's going to happen exactly the way that I said it's going to happen, because I'm God and it's going to do what I tell it to do. It's going to happen exactly the way I planned for it to happen. So he says here that he's going to do this to Pharaoh. Now, <coughs> again, Moses hasn't even went down and said anything yet, right? God is establishing some things to, to Moses. I'm doing this. I'm going to do this. With a strong hand, he is going to send you out because of what I am doing. So, a couple of things. Not only are you going to see my sovereignty, but listen. Whenever you're seeing all these things happen, take heart. All these plagues that's going through, take heart. I am still the Lord. I'm still in control of everything. When all the hail, when all the flies, when all the lice, when all the frogs, when all the blood in the water, when all the dead people and the dead animals and the boils and all that stuff starts happening, whenever you see all this stuff happening, remember, I am the Lord. Verse 7, or chapter 7. Look with me if you're at, at uh, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. Here it is again. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Drop down to verse 13. <clears throat> I'm sorry, drop down to verse uh, uh, 8. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, 
Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become the serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. So who hardened his heart? God hardened his heart. How did God harden his heart? As the Lord had said. What does he mean by that? And, and mark that phrase, as the Lord has said, because we're going to see that. How many of y'all have ever heard in this account people say, well, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh had first hardened his own heart. Well, that don't make any sense, does it? Right? It don't make any sense. Okay, God hardened it because Pharaoh hardened Well, if it was already hardened by Pharaoh, then why did God need to harden it? No. Pharaoh hardened his heart is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It said Pharaoh hardened his heart, but as you'll see, just as God had said. Well, how did God say? That's, that's the key issue. That's why I wanted you to make note of that phrase. Because we're going to see that in every place where we read about Pharaoh hardening his heart, it goes back to the first occurrence. Where did we first hear about Pharaoh's heart being hardened? It was God telling Moses in advance that God was going to harden it. Pharaoh would not let him go, thus his heart was hardened. So Pharaoh would harden his heart and will not let my people go. That was God. So whatever it says, as God had said, or as the Lord had said, it is always pointing you back to, what did God say? What did God say? Remember what God said? Remember in all of this, God isn't, uh, Pharaoh isn't some puffed up God, as they claimed He was, who's, uh, who's uh, 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 defying the Hebrew God, I'm going to raise myself up and I'm going to defy the Hebrew God and no, they will not let him go. That's how it looked on the outward and that's probably how the Egyptians took it and that's probably how Pharaoh spun it. That Hebrew guy came in and told me their Hebrew God said let him go and I told him no. Even amongst all that stuff that they did, I told him no. Well, your heart was hardened as the Lord had said because his purpose was that you would not let him go at that time. He says, verse 14, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. But how was it hardened? Again, as the Lord had said. Right? Look at chapter 8. Now, we're skipping over all the coming in and the plague starting. And remember, every time he would do a plague, it would happen and for a little while they would sustain it or that they would uh, uh, endure it. And then after they've endured it for a little bit, then Pharaoh was like, all right, all right, all right. Just turn it off. You know, if you'll turn it off, I'll let them go. And then he would turn it off. And then as soon as he'd turn it off, Pharaoh's heart would harden. Remember, that's kind of the sequence. Plagues begging for help, 
getting the help, hardening the heart. Next plague, right? Okay. So if you'll look there in chapter 8, verse 15, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them. So there he said, Aha! And remember, I was saying a while ago, people say the heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. I've also heard it where they've actually counted it out. Well, there was this many times that said God hardened his heart, and there was this many times that said Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and there was more times that showed that Pharaoh hardened his own heart than God hardened his heart. So therefore, Pharaoh was the one doing the hardening, and God was the one who hardened it all out. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You're laughing, I laugh. But I was serious about that. I preached that one time. Comparing the two hardenings. But what does it say here? But when Pharaoh, or excuse me, uh, yes, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them. But here it is, as the Lord had said. Look at verse 19. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Same chapter. Drop down to verse 32. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Wait, it doesn't say as the Lord had said there. So that means forget all of what you heard earlier. Pharaoh's the one hardened his own heart. Pharaoh fitted himself for destruction. Pharaoh had free will. Brethren, just because it didn't say it in that verse doesn't mean the other verses are now removed. Remember, why is Pharaoh hardened his heart? He's hardening it just as the Lord had said. But just in case you think it stops there, look in chapter 9 because the Lord picks right back up with the same verbiage. Again, chapter 9, look at verse 12. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. So here, let me make a note. Just in case you thought me taking the phrase as the Lord had said meant what God told Moses earlier, and because some I've had some people say, well, he's just talking about that that he would not let the people go. That's what the Lord was saying. That he would not he would hearken not hearken to the Lord and wouldn't let the people go as the Lord had said. He won't let my people go. No, 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 no. Now here we see the Lord makes it even clear that he hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. So now it makes it very clear that as the Lord had said was exactly what he had said to Moses. I will harden his heart. They will not be let go. The purpose for hardening the heart is so that he would not let them go. He wasn't just hardening Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would be obstinate for no reason. He was hardening it so that he would not let the people go so that the very next round of plagues would come in. There was a purpose for it. There was a reason for it. God raised him up for a specific purpose. Look at verse 16. 
And in the very deed for this cause, now this is God talking through Moses to Pharaoh. And in the matter of fact, let's just go ahead and read it. That, and the Lord said in verse 13, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up. This is what God is telling Moses to tell Pharaoh that God said. So Moses is saying, hey, this is what God is saying about you. I have raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Now, allow me to... Uh, sidetrack here just a minute how many of y'all seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston y'all ever seen that let my people go okay pretty much everybody on the planet has probably seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston if they haven't probably just about everybody on the planet has heard of Moses and probably just about everybody on the planet knows about the ten plagues. Right? And probably just about everybody on the planet knows that God parted the Red Sea. Even if you're religious or not, probably most people have heard that story. And how God brought the waters down and killed all of the Egyptians. Now, whether that come from a secular story being told, a movie that was shown on TV, some sort of a child children's book, or a children's story, or a cartoon, or word of mouth, wherever that came from, guess what? God's power and His name is being declared through that. See, if you don't think God had a purpose in that, His purpose is still ongoing in Pharaoh. Pharaoh was raised up and Pharaoh has perished, but yet the power and the name of God is still being declared in all the world through what he did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself is long gone and not to be thought of again. But God, who still lives, by the way, who still is in control, by the way, who still controls the, the king's heart and everybody else's, is in control... And He is being glorified, maybe not by everybody, but by His people. He surely is. And it was for that purpose that He raised up Pharaoh. And He told him directly, listen, this whole exercise that we're going through right here is so that God's power and His name might be praised throughout all the, all the world. And guess what? You're the instrument that He's using to do it. You don't think God doesn't use evil? I've heard so many people say, well, God wouldn't use sin and evil for His purposes. God wouldn't use sin and evil for His glory. Right there, in plain black and white, is God using sin and evil to show forth His name. Let's stop with the theological debates and say, thus saith the Lord. And that's what it is. 
he says in verse 18, Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause it to rain. Oh, I'm sorry, not 18. Uh, verse 35, down to verse 35. <clears throat> More plagues of hell and fire came, and here we see in verse 35, The heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. The Lord. Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Doesn't you see the pattern here? Chapter 11, verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now, Look in chapter 14. We'll skip a few. Chapter 14 and verse 4. I'll start reading verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before oh Hirah between Migdal and the sea over against Baal Zephon. Before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And here it is, one last hardening. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is after Pharaoh let them go, by the way. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. Now, here you go. For those spec speculators uh, that are saying, Would God... Do all that just to show His glory. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned. The heart of the king is in the... Lord's hands. He turns it whithersoever He wills. The heart of the Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people and they said, Why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. And He made ready His chariot and took His people with Him and He took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. Here it is, verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out uh, with a high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them in camping by the sea beside Pi-Harith-Hoth. Sorry guys, master that. Before... Baal Zephyron, and when Pharaoh drew nigh, 
the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt us with us, dealt us, with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. Just a side note here, as it pertains to the spiritual aspect to this, you see the people didn't even want to leave Egypt. God said, these are my people and I'm taking them out of Egypt. And these people are saying, we want to stay in Egypt. Is that not the natural man right there? The natural man wants to stay in Egypt. The natural man loves the things of the world. He loves his nature. He loves his free will. He should have just left us in Egypt. We were fine where we were. We liked it there. They didn't even want to go. But God, in His, if you would, irresistible grace, brought them out of Egypt. They didn't know the blessing that was to come. They didn't know the greatness that was to be shown to them. They didn't know all the provisions of grace that the Lord was given and the inheritance that was set forth for them. They didn't want to go. But God brought them out anyway. He didn't ask them if they wanted to come. Did God ever once say, Hey Moses, could you go down and take a poll and see how many people want to go out of Egypt? <clears throat> if there's more that want to go than not want to go, then we'll go. If most of them want to stay, then I'm just going to forget it and go something else. No, God did never say that. Here again we see the picture of God's sovereign grace in saving His people. We have no in our nature have no spiritual inclination towards God and the God of the Bible especially, but to, towards God and salvation. But yet God saves us without asking us. And sometimes we may not like it right at first. It may battle with us. It may cause problems in our families. It may cause problems with our jobs. It may cause all kinds of issues. But God saves us and then the inheritance at the end we really don't see that until we see the fullness of it. They didn't see it until they saw the fullness of it. Right? And he says, "Is not uh, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Verse 13, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. They didn't even go across on muddy grounds. It wasn't muddy. It was dry. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Behold, I... I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon his host, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face. Now if you'll look and see later on in Scripture, you'll find out that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is in the pillar and in the cloud. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud of darkness to them, but he gave light by night to these so that no one came, neither other. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went to the midst of the sea and upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of the fire. Now notice, the Lord looked through the pillar of the fire. You remember I said, said a while ago that Jesus was in the pillar and in the cloud? And He said that the Lord, uh, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of the fire and of the cloud because He was in it. And troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right and on their left hand. <clears throat> Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore, and Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servants. And then what pursued after that? A song of praise for what God had done. He got honor upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horses. How did He do that? By ten times God hardened His heart. By ten times, God sending plagues and removing plagues. By God killing most of their animals, most of their people, and then in the ultimate end, God completely destroyed the whole entire army of Pharaoh and Pharaoh himself. God raised him up for that condemnation. Now, brethren, did Pharaoh have free will? No. If God can turn the heart of Pharaoh and harden it, He can harden anybody's heart. He can turn anybody's heart towards Him that He wants to. That's the good thing about sovereign grace. You don't have to preach to them so much. You don't have to beg them so much. You don't have to have 95 verses of just as I am being sung, begging them to come to an altar somewhere. You don't have to do that. And listen, it doesn't matter how bad the person is, how evil or wicked the person is, that God, by sovereign grace, can turn the heart whithersoever He wills. And so we praise Him for the God being the God of the Bible. Listen, I don't know about you, and I can't say this about myself in the past, but I can surely, at least, I hope I can say this about myself now. I praise the God that controls all things. I am thankful to have a God 
that has predestinated all things. But not only did He just predestinate them and turn them loose, He predestinates it, and then by His sovereign, almighty hand, He controls everything to make sure that everything, the very minutest thing, all makes it down to its very specific purpose for which He created and brought it forth. That way, the Lord guarantees the end from the beginning. Because God knows all of His words. Amen? Aren't you glad we have a God that doesn't bow to other gods or other men that can't be manipulated? He said that I am that I am. I am self-existent. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody controls me. I take counsel from nobody. I am self-existent. Every decision, every action, everything that ever takes place is because I chose for it to do that. I am in control of it. And it is not because I felt sorry for somebody and then changed my mind or, as we talked about last Sunday, repent of that and turn from it because it was a bad idea. No, I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. In all things that have not yet been done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. Anybody got anything you'd like to add to that? Or comments you'd like to make about it? Corrections or rebukes? I used to not like this kind of guy, brother. Tell me. I fought against that. I spent, I don't know how many years, I can't remember exactly when I began preaching and teaching in the Armenian churches, but <clears throat> around 2005, 5-ish area, whenever the Lord began to show me doctrines of grace. And uh, even at that, I still wasn't <laughs> happy about everything that I was seeing. But as the Lord begins to teach us and we begin to behold Him in His Word as He is revealed and seeing the fallacies of the traditions that's been indoctrinated into us, and it just, He becomes beautiful. To the children of grace, He is the Savior of life and the life. But God's purpose, God's grace, God's salvation, God's message, God Himself is the Savior of death and the death to those who are not His. So they're going to hate him. They're enemies of God, against God. They're at enmity. Their sin is still there before them. And there's enmity there. And there will always be enmity. Alright. Anybody got anything you'd like to share? Alright, let's go. Father, again, we come to you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for being the God that the Scriptures declare you to be. Without your sovereignty, without your control, things would just be in chaos. Wicked and evil man could never control this earth. They try. They think they can bring utopia here on earth through their governing powers, through their legislations. They think that they can bring some sort of a utopia by their social socialism and things like that, but Father, we know that the heart is wicked above all things, and who can know it? We know that men are quick to shed blood, and that the 
love of God is not in them. And that every motive, everything that they do to bring such so said utopia would be for personal gain, would be for personal means, and could be tainted. But Lord, we know that in your kingdom there is one who rules and reigns and that he is the governor over all things and that he rules in righteousness and holiness. And Father, those who are his servants, those who are his children, his sheep, they hear his voice and they follow him. They gladly bow down as the footstool of Christ. And Lord, we just thank you for the salvation that we have in and through the Lord Jesus. Lord, we know that in and of ourselves that we are no different than the rest of mankind. But Lord, we know that as far as spiritual things are concerned, that we have been united with Christ before the foundation of the world with an eternal love that can never be stopped, an eternal love that can never be hindered, an eternal love that will never turn. And Lord, we are so grateful that in the manifestation of time you brought forth that Son that you have set up from the foundation of the world to be our substitute, to be our surety. And you brought him forth and he lived according to the law perfectly on our behalf. And that substitution uh, of obedience was laid to our account. Although we in ourselves have sinned grievously against you, yet that obedience is laid to our names. And then that perfect spotless Lamb of God was hung upon a cross and took on the full penalty of sin, the wrath of God on our behalf, so that as our substitute once again, that everything that we owed, every debt that we were to pay, He paid fully. So that now there is declared over us not only justification, but forgiveness of sins, access to God, sanctification, all the blessings of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And Father, we look forward to the day and the consummation of all things whenever we shall be with Him. And we look forward to that day. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So I ask now, Lord, that as these leave today, we ask that You would be with them, that You would guide them, direct them. Lord, that You would give them safety. We pray for Mike, Lord. We're thankful for him being with us today and allowing us to fellowship together. We pray that You would give him safety on his trip back home wherever he goes. And Lord, we're just so grateful that we had an opportunity to fellowship and meet with him today. And I thank You, Father, for all that You do for all of us. And we just ask that uh, You'll be with the Phillips and them as they go home. Uh, thank You for keeping them safe on their way here with the high waters from the rains and Lord, we pray that you give them safety as they go back home. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.